I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On this episode of Newt's World, in his new book, Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions, Philip K. Howard argues that public employee unions undermine democratic governance and should be unconstitutional. American voters elect governors and mayors who, under union agreements, have been disempowered from managing schools, police departments, and other public agencies. He presents a searing five-point indictment that constitutional government can't work when elected leaders lose control over the public operating machinery. Here to discuss his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Philip K. Howard. He's a longtime friend a leader of government and legal reform in America. He is chair of Common Good and a best-selling author. He has advised both political parties on needed reforms. Philip, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. It's great to be with you again, Newt. So you've had a very unusual background to get to where you are now. As I understand it, starting at Oak Ridge National Lab. Yeah, I got a job at the Federal Poverty Program. My parents weren't very rich. And I got appointed to be the gopher to a Nobel Prize winner named Eugene Wigner for three summers when I was in college and ended up publishing papers when I was a teenager on economic matters. And it was just a fantastic education because you know, the best education is to be with really smart people and see how they think and to see how they do things. And it was just luck, but it was good luck. When you have those kind of summers as a young person, and there's somebody who was as brilliant as Wigner was, when you look back, what do you think of the big things you learned? You know, the thing I learned there, I think more than any other, was the kind of mystery of human accomplishment, that you can't reason your way into accomplishment, that people get ideas, they're trying to solve a problem, but the ideas come to them by accident or spontaneously through their subconscious. And it's people following their instincts that leads to great innovation 
and to great things. It's not people, you know, filling out the right boxes and shuffling paper. There's a kind of mystery to human nature that has to be honored if you want things to work. You went from there to law school, went to Yale College and University of Virginia Law School, and you're a senior counsel at the law firm of Covington and Burling. What does lawyer training teach you about how you view the world? <laughs> well, it generally teaches you really bad things, which is you know one of the reasons this country is in such trouble. We think that if we have enough process and enough rules, things will work well. But being a lawyer, at least in my case, taught me to have a healthy skepticism for the virtue of law. I mean, one of the things that I think was formative in my young legal career was I was a civic leader in New York. I was a chair of the Municipal Arts Society, and we would do all these civic battles to make New York a better place or whatever. And my friends who worked in government couldn't use their common sense. They would say, gosh, we ought to do this, but I don't have the power to do that. But they were people who had big jobs. I mean, they should have had the power. So I started looking into why don't people with responsibility have the authority to act on their best judgment? And it was that question that led me to ultimately to writing The Death of Common Sense. I just kept thinking, then I did it, and I read Hayek. My copy of Friedrich Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty is literally in tatters. It's so marked up. You know, I read it so deeply. And then I discovered this wonderful book by a guy Michael Polanyi called Personal Knowledge, written in the 50s, about the personal nature of innovation and, and how the mind works and how self-consciousness makes people fail. So if you ask a pianist to think about how she's hitting the keys on the keyboard, she can't play the piece. You know, it's self-consciousness is really the enemy of innovation. Anyway, I discovered that Polanyi had been Eugene Wigner's mentor. And so all of these ideas that I was having, you know, they all went back to the lunches I used to have with this Nobel Prize winner and this little team he had talking about how things get done. I first got attracted to your work when you wrote The Death of Common Sense, How Law is Suffocating America back in 1995, which became a New York Times bestseller, which really sort of took on your own profession, didn't it? Yeah, I did. It basically said counterintuitively that if you try to make law precise, you turn it into central planning. You give somebody a thousand-page rule book, they'll go through the day with their noses in the rule book, and they'll never get anything done. They'll be tripping over wires and falling flat on their face. And that's sort of what we've done to modern government. And similarly, if you give somebody rights, you give them the right to complain about anything, to bring a lawsuit about anything, pretty soon people will be wielding those rights like an axe and extorting people all throughout society. And the cost of that won't be a lot of crazy verdicts. The cost of that is everyone else will go through the day tiptoeing, looking over their shoulder, scared that they might offend somebody. And boy, that problem's only gotten worse. You know, in the land of the First Amendment, no business will give a job reference because they're scared of getting sued, right? That's honest. And on college campuses, you can't even express a dissenting political view without getting canceled and ostracized. It's terrible. So in that sense, are you more pessimistic than you were 20 years ago? Yes, I'm more pessimistic. On the other hand, it's darkest before the dawn. 
And people in America know that there's something wrong with this system. But what hasn't happened yet is that neither party has presented a vision of how to fix the operating machinery. Parties argue over policies like immigration policy or climate change or that sort of thing. But they haven't really created, they haven't given a vision. You've been writing about this recently yourself, about the need to kind of reboot the systems. Well, we need to have a vision of, one, that we have to do it. And secondly, how do we do it? On what principles? Well, and that's one of the places where I think you've been among the most creative writers in the country, because you're at least wrestling with the notion of how do we go back to a responsibility-based system rather than a rules-based system. Yeah. For example, if people can be accountable when they don't do the job, you can give them much more freedom to take responsibility, whether it's to run the classroom in the best way possible or run the school or to give permits on a timely basis for infrastructure or all the things that can't happen in today's society. Giving people the freedom to take responsibility requires that they also be accountable to someone else up the chain of authority. And in modern American government, and I write about this in Not Accountable, there is basically zero accountability in the government at every level. I have recently been writing about the report in Baltimore on 23 schools in which not a single student was proficient in math. Out of 2,000 students, not one was proficient in math. And my theme is save the children, and you can't save the children within that system. It's not possible. That's correct. So running an inner city school is undoubtedly hard, right? I mean, these kids are not socialized necessarily. They've come with a lot of disadvantages. But the good charter schools have figured out how to do it. Eva Moskowitz's success academies in New York, they often share a building with a public school. They pick their students by lottery. So it's from the same cohort of students. There's one school she has in Harlem an elementary school that's ranked 37th in the state of New York out of 2,400 elementary schools. The adjoining public school in the same building with the same cohort of students was ranked 1,694th. What's the difference there? The difference is that somebody is using their imagination and their energy and the magic of their own ability to adapt day to day to inspire these kids to learn. And the other one is just going through the motions. I always tell people from my own experience teaching in high school and college that education is a missionary vocation. You're in the process of engaging the imagination, creating the excitement, encouraging the growth. It is explicitly not a bureaucratic procedure. And if anything, the bureaucratic procedure kills the opportunity for learning. Completely. I once wrote a chapter in a book called Bureaucracy Can't Teach. And there was a wonderful book written by some scholars at the University of Chicago a couple of decades ago called The Moral Life of Schools, where they went into classrooms for weeks on end and studied the kinds of little judgments that teachers made. And two things in common. First, what did all great teachers have in common? Nothing. They're completely different personalities, completely different ways of approaching the students, all that kind of stuff. But they all had a knack for engaging the students' interest and making them want to be there and learn. And they were making all these little moral choices all day long. It's an art. And it is like being a missionary. You know, it's really pouring yourself out, your personality. And if you standardize it, 
you make the teachers boring and just by that alone make them fail. It's doubly interesting because we're in a situation where we actually know what works. You know, and Drucker made a very similar point in his amazing book, The Effective Executive, where he said, being effective is not genetic, it's not looks, it's not intelligence. It's a series of learned behaviors. If you learn them, you are astonishingly effective. And if you don't learn them, you're not. And the same thing here. I mean, we know that if you liberate people to pursue their passions, you get a totally different situation than if you trap people into worrying about a petty set of rules. Now, we know that. Yeah, we know that. And yet that's what we do. And again, going back to your point, it is hard being a good teacher in these situations. But you go into the good schools. Well, it could be public schools, too, or charter schools. There'll be a buzz. There'll be a sense of shared mission that everyone has to make a difference. If you instead create a regimented school system with, by the way, no accountability, then there's no mutual trust that others are working hard. Why should you work hard, right? And the bureaucracy on top of that weighs down on you. And pretty soon you're just going through the motions and the kids don't have a chance. It is a crime. It is a crime that those 23 schools in Baltimore have not one child who's proficient in math. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. In 2002, you founded Common Good, which you describe as a nonpartisan reform coalition with one basic goal, to restore the freedom of officials and citizens to use common sense. First of all, what led you to found it, and how is it doing, and how can people be involved in it? Well, what led me to do it is I wasn't making that much headway with the political system to advance these ideas, because as you know, Washington is a giant engine of the status quo. 
right? So any message that says you need to reboot the system, which is one of the messages that you're sounding right now, any such message is not going to be received with open arms by 10,000 interest groups. <laughs> you know, they're doing fine with the status quo. So I thought there needed to be at least some voice that was talking about and presenting different models for how to do things. So one of the first things we did was organize a coalition of everyone in healthcare, the patient safety groups, the AMA, everybody behind the idea of creating expert health courts to solve the medical malpractice problem. We even got President Obama to support it. And there was a provision in the Draft Affordable Care Act doing a pilot project for these expert health courts that wouldn't have juries that would have the advantage by restoring trust and justice of not only creating a culture of candor within hospitals, which improves patient safety, but also saving about $200 billion a year in defensive medicine. We had a partnership with the Harvard School of Public Health. And the night before the Affordable Care Act was supposed to pass, Harry Heat Reed, the trial lawyers got to him and removed that provision for the pilot project. We present actual proposals and build coalitions behind them. More recently, I've been working on infrastructure permitting, and some of that has actually been enacted. But, you know, we have very concrete proposals that in order to make aspects of society work better. One of the things that you've really focused on, which I totally agree with, in your new book on Not Accountable, is the impact of the teachers' union on driving and defining what is acceptable education policy. So somehow in our current dialogue, nobody makes a connection between how much the teachers' union blocks progress and the fact that none of those 2,000 kids can do math. It's really astonishing. You know, here you have a situation that ought to be treated like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Wait a minute. None of these kids are learning because the schools aren't manageable and the teachers union use all their power to get President Biden to have new regs, making it hard to open new charter schools. They're the only ones who are succeeding, you know, in the inner cities. I mean, it's just astonishing. They won't go back to work during COVID because the teachers union contract didn't require it. They won't do distance learning during COVID because there's nothing in the contract about that. So we've got to renegotiate that. They're so selfish and so restrictive and there's zero accountability. There's almost zero manageability. You know, the principal can't go into a classroom and observe a teacher unless without advance notice and under control of circumstances. The principal can't give extra training to a teacher because the union limits that. You make the point that in New York City, out of 55,000 teachers, only eight were dismissed for poor performance. In Illinois, they only had two teachers out of 95,000 dismissed for poor performance annually over an 18-year study period. So if it doesn't matter how bad you are and how incompetent you are, you have a job for life. I tell people the Baltimore system works 100% if you think of it as a payment system. It just doesn't work as a school system. But it does a great job every month of paying. In New York City, a teacher who was convicted of being a cocaine dealer when he came back out of jail was ordered to be reinstated. Recently, a principal who had great record in Queens, New York, was discovered to have falsified all of those results on the test, and they couldn't get rid of him, eventually reached a settlement 
where he would leave the principal's job in exchange for being paid, get this, $265,000 a year for seven years. The person who is guilty of fraud. So the contracts that have union-approved arbitrators, union-approved rules, the tragedy is, of course, it's bad for the teachers. They have to be in these institutions without pride or respect or energy. I mean, who wants to work in a place like that? Which leads you to sort of take on this whole notion that the very structure, the very concept of public employee unions is probably a violation of the Constitution. Yes. Trade unions like steel workers unions and coal miners unions, all that, the origin story of them were abuses in workplace and deaths and unsafe work conditions. And that was all in the 1890s and 1900 and whatever. And there was a role for unions and they helped sort of rescue the cohort. There is no such role for public unions. FDR was firmly against public unions because he thought it was a conflict of interest. But what happened was that the civil service had created public jobs as a kind of a natural voting block because people didn't change over with every new party, you know, under the spoil system. And the leaders of these unions that had no power kept agitating for more power. And at the end of the 1960s, during the rights revolution, they got their democratic allies without anyone noticing it and without any debate to give them collective bargaining power. And almost immediately, they sat down with the politicians and said, we'll get you elected, but you have to give us what we want. And for 50 years, they've been piling on these controls so that there's, again, zero accountability and practically zero manageability. And there was never any need to have it at all. And people just didn't understand that public bargaining bears no relation to private bargaining. You know, in the private sector, when a union sits down with a company, if it demands inefficient work rules, they're all going to lose their jobs. The business is going to go out of business or it's going to move out of town. Government can't move out of town. And in the private sector, they're only arguing over the split of the profits between capital and labor. That's what trade unions do. In the public sector, the politician's not paying anything. And the government can't move out of town. So they're getting as much out of the taxpayer as they can. And then the negotiation itself is collusive. I think the most useful book ever written about Ronald Reagan is a little book called The Education of Ronald Reagan, His Years at General Electric. And in the eight years he was at General Electric, he'd been brought in by the vice president for labor relations who had seven unions, five of them led literally by communists. This guy had reached a conclusion that you could never negotiate successfully with union leaders. But what you could do was educate the employees so that they would refuse to strike and take power out of the union leaders' hands. And when you read this book, it's astonished. Tom Evans wrote it, who had served in both the Nixon and Reagan White Houses. I studied Reagan starting in 65, and I worked with him starting in 74. And only when I read this book did I realize how strategically principled his system was. And I think, in a sense, as people learn what you're reporting, public sentiment will increasingly conclude that we are in the replace, not the reform business. Right. You know, it's interesting what you're saying about Reagan, because I was in Chicago last week, and I was talking to some of the leaders there 
about dealing with the unions. And it occurred to me that the really good forum that would be, I think, maybe exciting to people is a forum on what should the deal with teachers be? Let's make a system that's better for public employees in this dreary, rule-bound, entitlements-based thing that's run by union leaders for union leaders, not for the people, not for the rank and file. You point out, for example, in terms of the imbalance of power, that Terry Moe discovered that from 2000 to 2009, teachers unions outspent all business groups combined in 36 states. And that the amount that they've been spending actually jumped 400% from 2008 to 2020. This is about raw power. Yes, and they are brutal. If you're a state legislator and you try to introduce a reform that somehow tries to cut back a little bit on union controls, there's a good chance that millions of dollars of national union money will come in and get you defeated. They will come up with a new candidate, and they will pour money into the campaign. When John Kasich had reforms similar to Scott Walker's to kind of defang the unions in Ohio, and he got them passed, what happened? The national unions came in with tens of millions of dollars, had a referendum initiative, which undid all those reforms. They hire buses and pay people to go testify and picket capitals all the time. They're the only organized group in our society that does that kind of thing. You point out that total membership dues for public unions is about $5 billion a year. I mean, that's a staggering center of power in a free society. Right. Used mainly for political purposes. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I want to dig a little closer into one of your key points because I think it's exactly right and could be the beginning of changing the whole conversation. And that is your point that 
it's very likely that the very nature of public employee unions is unconstitutional because it is a misdirection of power away from the elected officials and the American people towards groups that are unaccountable. Can you expand on that? One of the first principles of constitutional governance coming out of John Locke's second treatise is that you can't delegate sovereign power to any private group. Governing in a democracy is a sacred trust. We appoint people, elect people to make decisions, and they can't give it away, sell it, or they have to keep it and make those decisions and then be accountable in the next election. Democracy, it's useful to remember, is basically a process of accountability. People don't do a good job, you elect somebody else. So that principle is actually memorialized in a variety of places in the Constitution. The Constitution very clearly defines who has power to do what between the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch, and there's a lot of law on what that means. And then in Article 4, there's something called the Guarantee Clause, which is that, quote, the United States shall guarantee to every state a Republican form of government, end quote. And James Madison talked a lot about this during the constitutional debates. And basically, they said the states can create whatever kind of kind of democratic government they think makes sense for them. But the baseline of anything that they do is that the people they elect have to maintain the power to run government and be accountable to the voters. That's what it meant. The Republican form of government means that voters elect somebody who has the governing authority. And Madison said this prevents giving powers over to any aristocratic nobles or, quote, any favored class. And so what's happened in the last 50 years is that these collective bargaining agreements, legislatures have saddled executives like governors and mayors with contracts. They get elected and come into office and the contract's already in place and they can't do anything about it. And then if there's a disagreement over the contract, most states say that disagreement gets resolved by an arbitrator. Well, who elected them? In New York State, if there's a disagreement and it continues to be a disagreement, the law is that the existing collective bargaining agreement runs in perpetuity. (laughs) Illinois had passed a constitutional amendment in November, which provides in the Illinois Constitution that a collective bargaining agreement supersedes any past or future statute. Think about that. I mean, these people don't even know the concept of overreach. It is so clearly unconstitutional. And so in all these ways, I think what's happened runs afoul of the basic constitutional framework of American government. To show you how rapidly the change has been, As you point out, as late as 1955, AFL-CIO President George Meany said, quote, it is impossible to bargain collectively with the government. So here was the head of the union saying you can't possibly unionize government negotiations. Right. And even in the heyday of when unions were being created and somebody wanted to organize the police into unions, the labor leaders in the 1890s said, I think it was Gompers, who said, Police can't unionize. That's a conflict of interest. They owe duties to the public. They can't unionize to negotiate against the public. 
As a lawyer, do you think it's plausible that a case could actually get to the Supreme Court saying that this is a violation of the Constitution? Absolutely. It's the reason I wrote the book. Not only do I think it's possible, I think it's clearly correct. You know, my whole career was as an appellate lawyer. So, you know, when you're an appellate lawyer doing Supreme Court cases and that sort of thing, the way you're trained to think is not, well, does this fit with the past case or not? You're trained to think of what's the right rule to make this industry work or what's the right rule to make this society work. And so here is not a big leap. It's a little bit of a leap, but it's not a big leap to move from past precedents and a lot of discussion about things like the spoil system. By the way, the unions basically are now the new spoil system, right? That's what they are, except they're permanent. You elect a new person and they still stay in power. You know, it's like a permanent government for the unions, by the unions. I'm already talking to the team that brought the Janus case, which held that non-union members couldn't be compelled to pay agency fees to the union as a violation of their First Amendment rights, in notwithstanding the Illinois statute that said they had to. And so the team that brought that case and won in the Supreme Court is very interested in bringing my case. I'm also interested in bringing a case in New York State because it has a somewhat different and in some ways even worse set of rules, as I just mentioned, where collective bargaining agreements go on forever. So I'm in it for the action, not just to write the books. Let me assure you, anything I can do to help, I want to. There's no single change in the structure of government that would be as powerful as stopping the scale of the political machine now being run by the unions, which blocks any significant reform or replacement. Right. And think about the polarization, you know, that's happened and some of the craziness on both sides in the last few years, that's a symptom of frustration. It's a symptom that people keep electing people who say change we can't believe in or drain the swamp. So you were saying that the human cost of not fixing this is so great. Yes. And the only solution is to give people the freedom to start trying different things in the schools and to have new leaders in the police departments and to have a different way of managing public transit so we don't waste two out of three dollars and inefficient work rules and such. You've got to give people the freedom to make those choices. And right now they get in power, they get elected to manage, and they have none of the authority to do any of those things. Philip Ona, thank you for joining me. Your new book, Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions, along frankly with all of your previous books, should be must reading for those who are trying to understand the impact not just of employee unions in our society, but of the fundamental difference between an outcomes-based entrepreneurial model and a process-based bureaucratic model and the capacity of a outcomes-based entrepreneurial model to be just dramatically more creative and dramatically more effective. I don't know of anybody who has written more intelligently and more thoroughly than you have on these things, and we're going to encourage folks to really pay attention. I look forward to working with you both on developing the messages at large and in helping and encouraging the development of the court case. So I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World. It's great to be with you and great to work with you. Thank you to my guest, Philip K. Howard. You can get a link to buy his new book, Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions, on our show page at newtsworld.com. 
Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Oh, oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.